I want to begin in Mark chapter 3. It is good to see you and good to be with you this morning. Appreciate those who are uh, tuning in online through whatever way you're able to, to access this. We're glad that you're here and you're with us. I am thankful for those who are here in our little gathering here at the building. Uh, particularly, I'm thankful for Bo uh, because I, there was a moment where I was concerned I was going to be the one leading singing this morning. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if we would have made it, if anybody would still be watching at this point if I had been doing that. So appreciate you, Bo. Uh, you did good work this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 3, uh, before I get into this, I, I do want to say a couple of things um, just a- as an opportunity to kind of talk to the whole group uh, before I get started. Uh, the first thing is, it just seemed to me to be important to say that there is so much that's being pushed on us and talked to us about in the, the media and in the broader world, and there's a lot of panic and a lot of concern. I, I want to encourage our people, disciples of Jesus, to remember to renew their minds and be focused on things that are above because there is a perspective we gain from studying and thinking about spiritual things that is going to help us and it's going to help center us and give us peace and give us some focus. And then, of course, we can deal with the things that we hear and the things we have to deal with with our daily lives. Uh, But that is a key for us to be able to say there are things that are really important, and then there are the things that are the tasks and the the different things that we have to take care of in our own lives. The other thing is to be in in thought and in prayer about your brethren. Uh, Not everybody is impacted by this in the same way. Uh, Some of us, our jobs are are, uh, being threatened or we have concerns about that, and boy, that is a scary thing. And uh, so be thinking about others and be thinking about what we can do to help and encourage. And uh, that is just going to continue. It just appears to me, in my judgment, that there's a lot more to come of this. We're we're not at the end of it, but at the beginning. And because of that, I think we need to be uh, more and more careful to think about one another and how we can help each other. So let's think about that. I want to kind of center our thoughts around that for our study this morning. Mark chapter 3 and verse 31 says... And his, brother and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So what I want to do for our time this morning is just take some time to remind us that we are a family. Jesus has an interesting habit, and it comes up here. Sometimes people try to draw attention to his physical family. So here they say, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And it's interesting because the reason they're seeking him is not a good reason. You learn that back in verse 21, that they're actually saying he's out of his mind, and they're coming to seize him. So they're trying to get him where they can kind of, I don't know, put him away somewhere where he doesn't embarrass the family quite so much. So It's understandable that Jesus is not saying, oh, let me go talk to them because they're not there for a good purpose. But this is an interesting habit. It comes up more than once where when people try to draw attention to Jesus' physical family, he does this where he says, no, let's talk about my spiritual family. He says, let's turn the question around. Who are my mother and my brothers? Verse 33. Then in verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So he turns to the crowd and says, here is my family. This is my real family. My family are the people who are interested in God's will. So the New Testament uses the family image like this repeatedly. 
It is an extremely common way to refer to Christians. In fact, I think it's so common we don't even notice it. Uh, to talk about Christians as brothers and sisters. That that's so common and happens so often that we don't usually call attention to it. But think about the power that that picture has. The power of a family. Even if you didn't have a great home life. There is still a yearning in each one of us for that sense of family. That sense that we belong somewhere. That sense that people love us. That sense that we come from somewhere. And so it seemed to me appropriate, particularly in a time like this, where we're physically separated, we're unable to meet in the normal ways, to remind us of those bonds that we have, that we are a family, and that's the way God teaches us to think about ourselves and each other. So let's just think through that picture for a few minutes. First, uh, we all have something in common. That's what Jesus says here. Uh, He says, my true family is not just those who share my physical character. That is, they look like me or we all come from the same mom or something like that. It is instead those who share something with me. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And you can trace this through the life of Jesus. Jesus has a tremendous focus throughout his life on the will of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says, when I judge, my judgment is just because I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You want to talk to Jesus, it's going to come up. What does God want? What's the will of the Father? So he says, if you want to know who my family is, it's the people that are like me in that they do the will of God. They're interested in that. There is a commonality there. And he says, these are my family, my mother, my sister, my brothers. These are my people. You know, sometimes we say that. Uh, when when we're talking about somebody we really have a lot in common with, we'll say, oh, you're like a brother to me. Or sometimes in the military, they'll say, we're brothers in arms. Or we'll say, and this is one of my favorites, we'll say something like, you know what, these these are my people. These are the people who are most like me. You get me. And what we're saying is, not that there is a, a literal family resemblance or something like that. We're just talking about this. We have something in common. So there's another time when this happens. Uh, This is Luke 11, 27 and 28. It says, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. So you see that again. Someone is trying to say, hey, your mom's a lucky woman. You know, you sure to have a great family. And he says, blessed rather. You hear that? I don't talk about that. I don't want to talk about my physical family. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So you could save your accolades for my family. I'm not interested in talking about my family, he says. I'm interested in those who are like me, who hear the word of God and keep it. People who are really interested in the will of God. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 23 for a minute. Matthew 23. So one of the ways Jesus uses this idea of a family is to talk about disciples and their equal status. That we are all the same before God. You're probably familiar with the fact that, I know I've talked about it before, that the disciples sometimes get into arguments about who's the greatest. And they're always looking at each other and saying, well, I'm better than you, I'm better than you. And I, I always wonder what those arguments were like. Like, what, what's the substance of the argument? How do you, I, I'm better, no, I'm better, no, I'm better. But this is the way Jesus addresses that. He says, you need to think about how your relationship, you are a family, and that kind of has some implications as to status. Matthew 23 and verse 8, he's, in this chapter, he's blasting the Pharisees and the scribes. 
Matthew 23 and 8, he says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So you get the picture. You have one teacher. You have one father. So none of you is a teacher of the others. You're all students. Okay? You have one father. You're all brothers. And particularly in verse 8 there, you have one teacher and you're all brothers. Now, I think we have to be careful with this verse because I think sometimes we... We take Jesus as if he is strictly literal. And what he is saying is, don't call anybody your father, which of course would mean we can't call our physical father's father. And don't call anybody teacher, which means you can't call a teacher a teacher. I don't think Jesus is being literal here. That's not the focus. He is saying, the roles that you may have, if you are a father, if you are a teacher, are not about status that one is inferior to the other. That's not the way to think of it. And that's the way the Pharisees had done. They had said, no, I'm a better person. I get all these honors. You know, I have the fancy places to sit, and I wear these nice clothes, and everybody, you know, gives me these big greetings. So instead of thinking that way about yourselves, he says, think of yourselves as all brothers. And there is a a commonality in that that says we are all serving the same God. We're all under the same Father. We all have the same teacher. So we're not any different. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We're all the same. We have something in common. That brotherhood is found in submitting to one teacher and one father. So in a family, we share something. We have a connection. It's a connection to one another, and it's a connection to all the other people in the family. Now, in a family, maybe that's a blood connection. But I think we probably all have people in our kind of extended families that may not even be connected by blood. Some of them are connected by marriage. Some of them are connected because, you know, they're really close friends who are with us a lot and they know the family so well that we've accepted them as if they're one of us. But whatever it is, there is a connection there because we share something. We share something. And as Christians, we share something. We have something in common. I think you know what I'm getting at here. We have a common faith that Jesus is the Messiah. We made a common commitment, serve him, serve other people. Love God, love your neighbor. We believe together that the Bible reveals the truth about God and about God's will for us. We are agreed here to follow him and to let him lead us to eternal life. And so we agree to work together in a local church. So I just want you to think about a couple of things from that. If we all have all these things in common, it seems to me that, first of all, we should focus on what unites us instead of what divides us. Because there are going to be some things that we don't see eye to eye on, that are different. So we could talk about, well, we're from different places or we have different hobbies or different political opinions or we do different jobs. And we could very easily start focusing on those things and end up fragmenting. But what's the point in that? So what that means is I'm going to need to seek out people who are having something in common with me in areas that really matter, in spiritual things, like Jesus did. Whoever does the will of God, that's the one. That's my family. So instead of just trying to find people who think like me and do like me in all the different areas, which, by the way, where are they? Where are the people who think exactly like you? I haven't found mine yet. Okay. Instead, 
we seek out the commonalities. So let me encourage you. We have something in common. Let's focus on what we have in common. Let's talk together about the Bible and about our prayer lives, about how we're growing. Let's encourage in one another the good that we're seeing. Let's pump each other up about what we share because we have things in common. And the other thing about this, if we have something in common, let's not try to be superior or inferior to one another. That's not going anywhere. The idea that there's status before God. We all contribute to one another's spiritual lives. We all work. We all encourage. We all study. No one is better than anybody else. That's what a family is. We're a family, and because we're a family, we're equals. We all have something in common. The second thing I want to show you is that we're a family in that we all belong. Part of family is belonging. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10. In Mark 10 and verse 28, this is right after uh, Jesus has talked to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler has gone away sorrowful. And so they start to ask him about, uh, well, Jesus talks about uh, rich people and the difficulty in entering the kingdom. In Mark 10 and verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Peter says, you know, we've left everything. And Jesus says to him, well, everyone who has left something will gain something. There will be a benefit. And he talks about it in verse 30. There's no one who is left who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. So the idea is not that we get a hundred times more houses. Like the prosperity preachers say, they take this passage and say, oh, look, you, you could become fabulously wealthy. Uh, that's not the idea. The idea here is we leave physical things. But what do we gain? We gain a family. You know, you may have to leave certain elements of people that are opposing you for your faith in Jesus, but you gain something bigger. That's what he's saying, a bigger family. I have, me, Jacob, personally, far more houses and brothers and sisters than I ever could have on my own. Not because they're literally mine and I possess them, but because I now have something in common with a much greater group of people than just my physical family. That's what he's saying. You will gain even if it appears you lose. But I want you to notice verse 29. In verse 29, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister who will not receive a hundredfold. Do you see that? There is no one. We all get these blessings. We are all part of a bigger family. We all belong. All of us hold this promise, and all of us hold this sense that we belong in a family, we all have our place, and we all fit. That's part of being a family, is that you have a place where you belong. This is you and your place. This is where you should be. And there are times, of course, that we may wonder about that. Maybe in a physical family, we wonder, "Uh, do I really belong? I think we go through our teenage years and we say, am I really like these people? And I think there is some sense in which people can struggle with that in a spiritual way talking about a spiritual family. I think that's what Paul is alluding to in 1 Corinthians 12, 15, 
where he says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So we switch the picture here from a family to a body. But he says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Okay, so you have a foot saying, I feel like I don't belong. I feel like there's no place for me. But he says, just because you say, I'm not a hand, doesn't mean that you don't belong to the body. He says, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. We know that our bodies need feet just as much as they need hands. But then he says in verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. So we have a place and we belong, but it's not always going to look the same as how everybody else has their place and belongs. You belong because you're family. You already belong. You don't have to do something to belong. You already belong. That's the point. I was thinking about this the other day when we, uh, we picked up food for my kids. And I have three kids, and I don't, I don't think, you know what? I'm not going to feed that one until he does something. He needs to earn his place. No, he's a part of the family, and he doesn't, none of, not just he, any of them, they don't have to earn their place. They are family. They already belong. And that's the way it is in a spiritual family. We already belong. We don't do something to belong. We belong because we are a part of the family. Now, part of that has to do not just with commonality, but the picture we'll pursue in a moment, which is the idea of of being born or adopted into the family of God. But the point is, we have a unique set of gifts and experiences and thoughts that we bring to the family. We belong here, and everyone belongs. We all belong. So, a couple of thoughts. First, we need to value all the members of the family, everybody, because everybody belongs and everybody matters to God. So what that means is we don't talk ugly about each other. We don't give preference to those that we know better. We don't ignore the needs and concerns of people that, in Paul's language, that are feet We're all here to work together and to serve one another. Even when some members of the family are different. And just like a physical family, every family has some people that are a little different. But they don't get kicked out of the family for being different. Some of us are different. But we love each other and we value each other anyway. And I think the other part of this, if we all belong, we need to appreciate the beauty of that. That there is beauty in God's family Because all of us, no matter how different we are, are brought together by God's genius to show us as a harmonious whole, a body, a family, instead of just disparate parts. So we all belong in a family. Third thing I want to show you is that we all love each other. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4. John talks a lot about this picture of how true disciples, followers of Jesus, have love as a characteristic. 1 John 4. I want to read 1 John 4, beginning in verse 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So he says, first of all, we love each other because we love God. That's verse 20, verse 21, that if we say we love God, but we hate our brother, then we're a liar because we can see one. And so the implication is it's easier to love someone you see than someone you don't see. So if you hate your brother, the one you see, how could you possibly love a God you can't see? But I want to focus on chapter 5 and verse 1. Chapter 5 and verse 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That means that we are children of God. When we believe and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. So if we are God's children, he says, and we love our father, then we're going to love God's other kids, too. We're going to love our brothers and sisters. So he takes that picture of a family and he says that family is going to be characterized by love. You can't love God and hate God's kids. It doesn't work. And I think we would say that about physical relationships too, right? Okay? If you love me, you're, you, know, you can't love me and hate my kids. It's not going to work. In the same way, God wants us to love his other children. So we are a family, but a family that's characterized by love. Let's go to 1 John 3, back a page here. 1 John 3 and verse 11. 1 John 3, 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the alternative he presents here to love is hatred. Either we love each other or we hate each other. And he talks about Cain and the, the hatred that possessed Cain's heart. He talks about how the world hates us because the world is characterized by hate. But then he says, Whoever does not love his brother abides in death, is a murderer. I mean, these are strong words. And I think very often we would push back on that. You know, I don't, I don't hate anybody. I don't, wouldn't want anybody to die. I just want to ask the question. Let me, let me probe at that a little bit. Do you ever wish that some people would just go away? Maybe that something bad would happen to them. Or that they would fail in some way, maybe even some way that would make you feel a little better about yourself. I think that can happen in families. I think that can happen in churches. When I have probed that, that sense in myself, what I find is usually if I have any ill will towards somebody, it usually springs from either jealousy, where I feel like they have something that I deserve, or it comes from resentment because they shouldn't have hurt me the way they hurt me. And so... There is hatred there. I just feel like it's justified. It seems to me that what John is getting at is those, those emotions have no place in the heart of a child of God. That we love each other. We don't have ill will toward each other or hatred toward each other. How can we say we love God? How can we say we're like God and then hate the people 
who are just as closely related to God as we are. How could we do that? How could we not see the disconnect there? And so then John goes on to say, I'm in verse 16 to 18 here, but particularly verse 17, how if we have this world's goods and we see our brother in need, but we close up our heart from him, how, how can the love of God abide in us? How could that be? So John is saying the test of love is not, do you like someone? Do you hang out with them sometimes? The test of love is, do you open your heart? Do you care? It's about love. It's about family. But it's also about opening the heart to do what needs to be done and showing that love in real action. Now, ideally, family relationships are about love, characterized by love. I'm always struck by this, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 1, because I think this is a passage that doesn't really need any explanation. We know what he's getting at. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You see what he does there. He says, Timothy, you be careful how you talk to older men. And instead of saying, here are all the things you need to do for older men. You need to be respectful and kind and not overstep your bounds and what he says is, just, just talk to him like a father. It's just that simple. And then when you have younger men, talk to him like a brother. Or you have an older woman, talk to her like a mother. I mean, there's so much in that. Where you would say the whole way you address and present yourself towards someone is characterized by a family relationship. And there is such care and concern that very often, if we could just treat one another the way we would treat our physical family things would go so much more smoothly. That's what he's telling Timothy. You be careful in how you address the brothers and sisters in Christ because if you could just treat them the way you would treat in your family relationships with concern and love and respect, but also familiarity, then you could promote the kind of love that needs to happen in a local church. So let me just say this and we'll move on from this. The issue here is that we often confuse love with not actively hating. Love is essentially, in our minds, I don't have any problem with you. And John's definition is far broader. Love is, I care about you and I'm doing to help you. That's what love is. So, I encourage you to be open and thoughtful about all your brethren in a strange time like the one we're living in. To be thinking about how you can show love, not just feel it, but show it. The last thing I want to talk about is that we are a family and we are all growing. Families are always changing and shifting. Things are always moving in a family. And God's family is no different, but God's family is growing in a certain direction. And I want to think about that with you for a minute or two here. Ephesians chapter 2 is where I want to show you this. Ephesians 2. By the way, this passage, um, I encourage you, if you have some downtime, just take some time reading and meditating on this passage because there is so much here. It is a rich passage. And I'm not going to be able to do it justice in in the time that I'm going to present about it uh, right now. But Ephesians 2 and verse 19, I want to just read 19 down to 22. Ephesians 2 and verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together 
into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul is talking to them as a group, mainly the idea of Gentiles who now are accepted by God uh, through Christ. And he says there in verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, that is outcasts, people who have no home, but instead you are fellow citizens with the saints, so you have a, a homeland, and members of the household of God. That is the word, God's family. You are God's household. But also, the other picture that Paul is working with here, and he's laying, layering picture upon picture, the other picture is of a temple. So he says in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So first of all, I want you to notice that the structure in verse 21 is joined together. Just as the parts of the building, you know, you, you watch a building being built and there'll be parts and the frame will go up and then you'll put parts on it and slowly the building sort of comes together. The building that God is describing, the one God is building is being joined together. That the parts are being put together to make a cohesive whole and then it grows. Now buildings don't grow. He's mixing his metaphors, but we grow. So verse 21, it says, the whole structure grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the picture is that we are growing together and then that we are also being built into something, growing toward a place where God can live and God can be honored. So we are that place, but we're also growing into that place. Verse 22, in him you are being built together. So notice that. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God dwells in us through His Spirit, and God builds us into His dwelling place by His Spirit. There's a lot here. I can't go into all of that, but it is a rich picture. But what I want you to see is, is pretty straightforward. It's of a group that is always improving, always growing, always moving towards something greater. As we grow individually... So we grow collectively. We grow toward God and we grow toward one another. As God's Spirit works within us, making that growth happen. There's another picture. Uh, this is Romans 8.29 that also has the, the combination of growth and the family. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's Romans 8, 29. So the idea is we are to be conformed to the image of his son. We become more and more and more like Jesus. But the, the goal is that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. We would all be united. We would be a family of people who were like Jesus. He would just be the oldest brother, the firstborn among many brothers. And many is the focus. So that many, many more people would become more and more and more like Jesus. We're a family, and that means we're all growing together. God is at work in us. The Spirit bears His fruit in us so that we become more loving, patient, joyful, self-controlled, good, kind, faithful. As we grow individually, we grow together. We grow toward one another, and we grow toward the image of Christ. So let me just give you a couple of thoughts about that. First of all, we need to be encouraging the growth that we're seeing in each other. When we see it, we need to point it out. And we need to give glory to God for that. God is the one who's at work. 
But it's also encouraging, isn't it? When you look around and you see this person is, they're further along than they used to be. They're doing something I'd never seen them do before. They're reaching out. They're doing, they're reaching new heights. They're making better decisions. We encourage that. When the family, when we grow and we see individual growth, the family grows, the temple grows, and God is glorified. It would also help if we would focus on the positive that we see rather than the negative. It just seems to me we can be so critical of one another at times. Just looking for what's wrong, what's the problem. But this is a beautiful passage that talks about harmony and growth. Working together, being together, becoming what God wants us to be. And we can see that, but we have to look for it. We have to focus on the good. And that is going to produce harmony and peace in the family. It will make us stronger as a family. So, we are a family. My encouragement is check on your family. Get to know your family better. Value each member of your family. Love them. Show real care. Encourage growth in your family. Keep praying for each other. Keep serving each other. Keep reaching out to each other. Keep studying individually and together. Let's not let this kind of odd time blind us to what God is doing with us and in us and through us. Would you pray with me about that? Oh God, our Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity for us to read through your word and to think about our relationship with you and with each other. We're thankful for the love that you've shown us. And Father, help us to love one another. Help us to see the love that you've shown and to duplicate it not only in loving you, but in loving each other. We pray for our group, Father, the local church, and we pray for the work that we are doing, and we pray for the work that you are doing in us. I pray, Father, that each day, each one of us will grow closer to the image of your Son, that your Spirit will be at work in us to produce the things that are good for us. I pray, Father, that you will help us as we are being transformed to encourage each other and to build one another up. We thank you so much, Father, for opportunities like these to worship you and think about your things because they make us better and they draw us closer to you. We pray that you're pleased and glorified with our thoughts and our worship today. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go ahead and offer an invitation. I know this is a little bit of a different time uh, in terms of what we, practic- what we typically have as our practice. Uh, but... If there's someone here in our little group here that needs to respond in some way to let us know about something we can pray for you and pray with you about, or if someone is ready to be baptized into Christ, this is a time where we're going to offer the invitation. I also want to say, if there's someone who's listening in some other format and you realize that you need to make a change in your life, we want you to know we're available to help you with that. Whatever way that, whatever form that takes, if you want to talk more about or study more about some Bible topic, Or if you're ready to take the step and say, I want to be baptized into Christ, uh, we can make that happen. Just contact us. Let us know about that. We'd love to help you. But we're going to, uh, if there's any need that anybody has, we're going to stand now and sing a song of invitation.